We're excited that you're here with us to worship and study God's Word this morning. We hope in the future some of you will be able to join the Platinum Club members over here on this side. No, actually, we're thinking about moving the pulpit over in front of that section. But we're glad that you're here, and we have some guests here today. And we hope that you'll take opportunity after the service to meet those people and welcome them to our fellowship. Now, this morning, we have a very interesting question to answer. We're going to take a look at our introduction, then the source of death, because we just read from Ephesians 1 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Where did that come from? Then the sequel of death, how did that develop to come down to us today, and then the solution to death. You might wonder, why would we be studying death on Thanksgiving? Well, if you really understand, I think what Paul is saying in the New Testament and other writers in the New Testament as well, it will generate such a spirit of thanksgiving in your heart that you'll be lifting up your voice and if you want to shout hallelujah, just go right ahead. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, here is our question. An unrepentant sinner, is he dead or alive spiritually? Some people would say, well, he's dead. Dead is dead. Others would say, well, he's not dead in every part, and there's still some things he can do. Which is it? If we can grasp this, we're going to have a much greater appreciation, I believe, for what God has done for us. At least I certainly have. Richard Owen Roberts has observed that your understanding of God determines everything else about your life that is of any consequence. I want to add to that that your understanding of sin is going to go a long way in what you think about God. And today we're going to be taking a look at the source of death. The wages of sin is death. We know that. We're going to look and see how this happened. Sin and the resulting death penalty... I would say, are the greatest problems of mankind. But not everyone would agree with that. Modern man just couldn't see it. Modern man would say, well, if sin is just a series of wrong things that you do, such as murder or adultery or stealing, then we can just put man in a better environment and give him a better education, and we can take care of those things. We don't need God for cultural determinism we can handle that ourselves. Get him in a better environment. Well, there's only one thing wrong with that. Then the man who is stealing cross ties from the railroad will end up stealing the entire railway company. It just doesn't work very well that way. Then someone else would say, well, if man simply doesn't know the right thing to do and does the wrong thing, he may feel guilty, but certainly God must see it as ignorance. And, of course, if you don't know any better... That would be pardonable. That idea kept crept into the Greek Orthodox faith. Then if sin is a result of a bad example set by Adam, then Christ set a good example, and all you have to do is choose which example you will follow. In that view, there is no original sin passed down from Adam. We would have the very same choice that Adam had. This was originated with Pelagius in 300 A.D. 
and was propagated by men such as Charles Finney in the mid-1800s. Ian Murray writes in his book, Revival and Revivalism, about uh, a passage of scripture that Charles Finney quotes in his sermon, cast away from you all your transgressions and make you a new heart and a new spirit. That's Ezekiel 18.31. And I'm quoting Charles Finney here. I will show you what is intended in the command of this text. It is that man should change the governing purpose of his life. By exercising the simple volition of the sinner's mind, he may do so. It's all, all that is necessary to make a sinner a Christian. Just change your mind. You can see how awful sin is. Just turn from it and move on from there. If sin is just a weakness in man's nature, then man can be strengthened to obey God. God overlooks our weaknesses. This view says, I know I shouldn't give in to gossip and lying, but after all, I'm only human. And that was the argument that was used by some of those who were defending Bill Clinton when he was committing immorality in the White House. That one won't do either. Another idea, if sin is just due to a loss of righteousness, you must prepare yourself for the work of Christ by doing Christian works such as living a good life, baptism, and good works of charity. In a way, you can merit the merit of Christ. I'm quoting from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In every circumstance, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere to the end and to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. That's paragraph 1821, and here's another, 2010. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. Martin Luther answered, Good works do not make a man good, but a good man does good works. How could anybody possibly merit the abundant riches of Christ? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed these views of sin that are true to a point, but they don't quite go deep enough. And here's what he said in Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, a derogatory term used by the Jews, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. Sin goes all the way to the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's not just wrong things that we do. In fact, Christ tells us the things that we do and the things that we say come right out of what is dwelling in our hearts. So we could give a definition here. Sin is not being or doing all that God requires. And what does God require? Perfect obedience to His holy law. We could never for one day attain to perfect obedience in everything we think, in everything we say, in everything we do. Well, that is the goal that we are shooting toward. As we said last week, our goal is holiness, but we fall far short of the mark. Now, today we come to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians. 
we can discern that there must be a close connection between those two chapters because if you're looking in the scripture, you'll see that Ephesians chapter 2 begins with the word and. So we know it's going to be linked to what we began in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 last week, we saw the theme for the entire book of Ephesians. And here it is in verse 10. Verse 9, we'll begin with, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here is the account of what God is doing in all the ages to bring everything back together again, everything back together again under Christ after man's fall into sin. This is God's plan and his activity. Forget about what man is doing and man's response to this because we're going to see man is dead in trespasses and sins. And when men seek to thwart God's plan, it just unfolds that that's what God wanted to accomplish through their sin. God doesn't tempt anybody to sin. But at one time in history, the rulers, the kings, and the people decided that they would overthrow God's plan and crucify Christ. And all that did was to bring forth the atonement of the world. God likes to bring good out of evil without tempting anyone to evil. So this is God's plan. If this were man's plan and depended upon man's response, if you look at church history, we probably wouldn't have made it out of the first century had it not been for God's divine providence and the way he governed men and nations and circumstances to promote the church. We see everything that's transpired is entirely dependent upon God's grace and his mercy, his compassion, and his divine providence. That ought to be enough food for thanksgiving right there. Sources of death. Now we're getting down into the meat of what we're talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1. And today, actually, we're just looking at verse 1 and verse 5 because we've got a lot of things to say about how this matter of sin develops in the human race. 1 Corinthians 15:22. We're uh, very familiar with these verses. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, that almost sounds like universalism, doesn't it? All will be made alive. Well, when Christ returns, everyone will be resurrected, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. We're familiar with that. Ephesians 2.1 in the King James says, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're looking at a modern translation, such as the English Standard Version there in the pew, you'll see that it doesn't say anything about being quickened. You and you were dead in trespasses and sins, and here's where the quickened part comes from. Verse 5, the translators decided that since it was coming up, they would put it in verse 1. It's not in the original text, but it would add clarity to the thought. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So if you notice those differences in your Bibles, don't worry about it. That's where it comes from. Now, when Adam fell into sin, 
as the representative of the human race. When Adam fell into sin, what did mankind lose that had to be restored in the second Adam Christ? Now, I'm following an outline, and you'll see it on the overhead projector from one of my former teachers, Norris Anderson. And when I began to see this, it really enlightened my mind as to the depths of what Christ had done for us. Well, let's go to Colossians 3 and verse 10. I put some of these on the projector to facilitate your being able to read them. Colossians 3:10, and we're asking the question here, what did mankind lose? Now, if he's got to get it back again when he becomes a Christian, when he's converted, it must be that that was lost in sin, part of being dead in trespasses and sins. And having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You've got to know about God. You've got to know about the gospel, God's plan. And you've got to have true knowledge of God. And then in Ephesians, the companion passage, and put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, uh, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in righteousness, true righteousness, and holiness. So here are some things I think that were lost when Adam sinned. True understanding of God and His will, that's our definition of knowledge. Righteousness, right standing with God, and the resulting ability to be morally right in thoughts, words, and deeds. And then holiness, which we said is purity. Back to the garden to learn about the death penalty for man's sin. Is God's command clear to Adam? Or did he just make a mistake or maybe he didn't hear well? Yes, it's very clear to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Death is separation. If it's physical death, the body is separated from the soul. If it is spiritual death, your soul is separated from God. And that is for eternity. Spiritual death is a very serious thing. Another question. Was Adam deceived about eating the fruit? Did he just misunderstand God? The Bible tells us in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now remember, it's Adam who is the responsible party here because it is with Adam that God made the covenant. And he certainly should have stepped in and helped his wife to understand that when God says don't do something, we don't do it. Adam went into it with his eyes wide open. Now, we've already noted that Adam was appointed as a representative of the human race. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I didn't vote for him as my representative, and I don't care to have Adam representing me, because he didn't set a very good example. Well, you didn't have a choice, but there is some good news attached to that, and that is we have a second Adam who is representing us as well. Romans 5.15, for the free gift 
Now, keep that in your mind because we're going to be coming back to that when we get to the hope and thanksgiving. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression of the one, the many died, for the tra- if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Adam represented us, didn't do very well. Christ represents us, did much better. And we can be clothed with his righteousness. So let's take a look at the sequel here, the development of this thing with Adam. Because if we can see how Satan tempted Eve and what happened to Adam and Eve, we can understand about what happens to us along the way. What parts of man were affected by the fall? Were any parts left unaffected? Now, we could talk about many different parts that make up man, but we've chosen three, and we get those from the text here, and that would be in Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and gave also unto her husband with her, and he ate. What part of Eve is referred to first? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Uh, Temptation here has come to the senses, because the senses are what speak to the body. And so sin affects the body, and we'll see how. Next, it's desired to make one wise. There's the appeal to the mind. You don't have to be like other people. You can be like God. Well, there weren't any other people around at that time, just Adam. But you can be like God, and you can be wise, and it appeals to her mind. And third, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband. She exercises her will At this point, the body is stimulated by the senses. The mind processes the data. The will makes the choice. In what kind of universe do we live? We live in a cause and effect universe. So you do this, and this will be the result. You do this over here, and that will be the result. And we're going to see the result after sin has come in. And the first thing that we want to see is what effect did sin have on the body, your body and my body. According to the book of James, something came metaphorically to live in the body. James 1.14, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This strong desire is called lust, epithumia. It's a strong desire growing out of a corrupt condition of the soul. Now, there's nothing wrong with strong desire. I'm sure there was strong desire before the fall for good food or something of that nature. But now, this desire is coming out of a corrupt condition of the soul. Now, some men have thought that the key here, they understood this, and they thought the key would be to do away with the desires. 
Do you think that's going to work? Well, some men tried it in 270 A.D. We see Anthony of Thebes who became a cave hermit and just lived up in a cave so he could crucify his desires. And then you've heard of St. Simon the Stylite who lived most of the time for 36 years on the top of a platform on a 60-foot pillar. He came down just occasionally. He must have had a pretty good ground crew supporting him up on top of the pillar. Do you think we can crucify our desires? Well, the desires reside in the heart. And if you're up on top of the pole or if you're down in the ocean, wherever you are, you still have your heart and the thoughts of your heart to deal with. So the problem after the fall is that basically my desire now is not to please God or please others. My desire is to please self. And I may not be the most evil person in town. I wouldn't be as bad as Saddam Hussein, maybe. Maybe my desire is just um, in terms of pride. Maybe I'm running for the Man of the Year Award. So I do a lot of good things. But I don't do anything that's good enough to purchase righteousness from God, as we will see. Now, this inward desire can really get twisted. It's what drives the pornography industry. But it also can drive the average person. Here is a verse from the Old Testament. Oh, excuse me. Before we get to that verse, let me mention to you that that word epithumia is not always used in a negative sense. Christ says, I have strong desire to have this last supper with the disciples. If you have a modern translation, it will say earnest desire. In the King James, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Two different forms of the word epithemia. But now this desire that's twisted inward affects us all. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. He desires to be better off than his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't labor and achieve. He's saying, watch out for the motive that you have down inside. We usually think of lust in terms of some particular immorality, but whatever is done in the world apart from Christ is from someone's desire and would be the same thing, this epithumia, because everyone has sinned. And everyone suffers from that corrupt condition of man's soul. That's the reason Paul quotes in the Old Testament in Romans 3. We looked at this a number of times. It is quoting from Psalm 14. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, we're talking about righteousness before God. People may certainly do civil good in the community, and they may do religious good, but they may be worshiping a God who is created in their own image. There is no one in his own nature, the old nature, who can do righteousness before God. We're told that in Scripture in a number of places. God uses it for good, but the motive is lust or this twisted desire. Gluttony would be an example. 
Now we come to the mind. What happens to the mind here? A verse for us, Psalm 10.4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for him. Pride, that's the thing that keeps a person really from coming to Christ. A person says in his heart the same thing that the king of Tyre said, I am and there's none other like me. And he may not be thinking that consciously, but you see, the minute that we decide we have to come to God, that means we're dependent upon revelation. And modern man doesn't like to be dependent upon revelation. He likes to think that he can find out what he needs for himself by himself. Just get on the Internet and get on Google. You can find out anything you want to know, according to modern man. But the mind says he does not need God. Now, what happens to the will? The will obeys self. The will is nothing more than a name for your decision-making process. Let's say you go to Luby's Cafeteria down in San Antonio, and you're going through the line there, and there's that brisket. Does that brisket call out to you, choose me, choose me? Well, it uh, may almost be like that, but you choose the brisket because that's a choice that you make. You're hungry for brisket, and you choose that, and there you have it. Now let's look in Ephesians 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Covetous man has strong desire for something that belongs to someone else, something that's not his. The Bible says he is an idolater. That is a serious sin in the Bible. This greedy man or covetous man is worshiping himself. And that is the problem. Idolatry. Now, there is blasphemy that might be the worst sin in Scripture. But idolatry is an awful sin. The will now obeys self. Eve says, yes, I'll take it. And she obeys her desires instead of God's commands. And she becomes an idolater. She's saying that she knows more than God. At that point, I believe... Her will becomes chained to her desires. In other words, God says, you want to have it your way? The old Burger King syndrome? You want to have it your way? Okay, I'm going to let you have it your way. From now on, your will will be changed to your desires. Now, if we can grasp the awfulness of sin, then we can see the magnificence and mercy of God. Is God a just God? Absolutely, He is. So the penalty is going to have to fit the crime precisely, and it does. What is the penalty for the body? We know what that penalty is. It's the death penalty. It doesn't mean that you go to the cemetery the moment you sin, but it's talking about spiritual death, and of course physical death is coming because of sin. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It doesn't mean ceasing to exist. Adam and Eve struggled a long time after they had sinned. Death is a process. You can observe that in disease. 
in our struggle against the elements and in the aging process. There is an element of mercy in that death sentence. Suppose you've been born in 1095 when Pope Urban II proclaimed the first crusade to regain the Holy Land. If you had lived 930 years as Adam did, you'd still have 10 years to go. You'd be getting kind of tired by now. So the death penalty is merciful if you know Christ. What is the penalty for the mind? Ephesians 4:17. Ephesians 4:17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now, that doesn't mean that you just give yourself over to sensuality immediately. You can see in a culture where it goes gradually. You can see it in the culture of the United States that we're moving on toward sensuality gradually. Darkness is a terrible thing to happen to the mind. This means that when you think you are right, you happen to be dead wrong. But you can't see it because the mind is darkened. H.R. Ruchmarker talks about the fact that art... Displays a, displays a worldview. And he says that this darkness is pervading Western culture in the name of art. So if you want to look at the worldview of a people, take a look at modern art. Modern art cannot be understood unless we take this worldview into account. Many works would be useless, real junk, but for the fact that being art, they're exhibited because they have a message of almost religious importance, interpreting man and his world, yes, perhaps even as junk. And he talks about some of the horrible and nihilistic art that is famous art now. Well, the Bible says that if we're following our own way, we just keep on going with that, and we become separated. They are darkened, and their understanding, and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So we see the penalty for the will is the will is separated from God, darkened in my understanding and separated from God in my choosing. And again, I may certainly choose religious things and things that look pretty good. Do you want to go your own way? God says, okay, you can go your own way. You remember what we said last week, a quote from Augustine. You're free to do what you like, but you're not free to do what you ought to like. Free to do what you ought, he said, but you're not free to like what you ought to like. Your will is chained to your desires, and it's perverted by lust. What a terrible state in which to find ourselves. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Now, your way might not be as bad as my way, 
but it's still my way, your way, and not God's way. Because of blindness, I'm alienated from God. I'm separated from Him. I might even begin to hate God and His influence in my life because He's restraining my freedom, my freedom to sin. And we see that. You can just look at the news on the Internet and you can see people who hate God because they feel like He is restraining them from sin. So now man stands condemned because he is guilty. He has willfully violated God's law and now he is liable for punishment. Romans 5.18 Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. We're condemned because of this sin of one man. But good news is coming. Romans 1.32 Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see why we need to be really praying for the United States now? So here is a man in an iron cage wrapped in chains He's babbling to himself about how much he enjoys being locked up in his cage. What can we do to get him out of his condition? We can tell him, repent. No, his mind is darkened. He can't even see his need to repent. We can tell him, have faith. Have faith in God. He doesn't want you to be in this condition. He doesn't even understand in whom to have faith. He's there just enjoying himself in his circumstances, not knowing what is really going to happen to him. It's hopeless. His mind is darkened. His will is separated from God. His will obeys self. And his body is under the death penalty. What can we do? Nothing. Let's go home. No, let's finish. Solution to the problem. Are you ready for the second Adam in the nick of time? Payment for the sin. Romans 5, 6, you see, at just, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ paid the penalty, the ultimate penalty for the body. And his was a terrible death, the worst death they could think of at that time. He paid the penalty by dying on the cross, but when he was on the cross, he said something that was very much out of character for Christ. He said one word, why? He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I believe that at that moment on the cross, Christ is suffering the penalty for the mind. Do you know how when something serious happens, someone gets killed in an automobile, and we think, why? Why this person? Why Gerald? Sarah Waji? Why him at such a young age, a great messenger of the Lord? Well, I think that was what Christ was thinking just for a moment of time on the cross. Why? 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And you've heard sermons about God the Father turning his back on Christ. Momentarily, he can't look upon sin. And for a while, God leaves the Son to suffer the ultimate penalty for sin. What a terrible price Christ paid for us. But you remember we said there is a gift coming, a gift for you. Now, you can't earn a gift. You might not, in the darkness of your mind, even understand that it is a gift and that you could choose the gift unless something happens. We'll see in just a moment. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is life for the body. Abundant life here on this earth. Eternal life with Christ in eternity. In a new heavens and new earth. But not only life, there is truth for the mind. Your mind doesn't have to be darkened. You can understand the truth. Christ told Pilate, the reason I came here is to testify to the truth. We wonder a lot in our modern day about what's true about various things. Well, the Bible tells us the truth about God and man and life. But you don't have to have your own way obeying self all the way to hell. You can follow God's way through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, back to the man in the iron cage. We sang Charles Wesley's hymn this morning. And here is my conclusion. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That would be down into the iron cage where I'm chained up. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Could God be turning on the light for someone here this morning to enable you to see things as they really are? If so, respond to him by exercising faith in God's promise to save and sadness for your sinful condition, gladness for God's amazing grace, giving life to a dead man, and thanksgiving for the ongoing grace to live this new life that God has called us to live.